Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart, a teaching series from the book of Samuel. At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof, and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. In the mid-1400s, an oblong rectangle of marble was extracted from this place, the quarry, at Carrara, Italy. It was purchased by the church parish in Florence, Italy, to be part of a series of sculptures that were to adorn the new Duomo, or the um, large uh, domed chapel of the new church there. So these sculptures were going to depict various biblical figures, and so they were extracting pieces of marble large enough to be carved into these statues. Um, by the way, if you live in Cleveland, Tennessee, and you would ever like to touch Carrara marble, you can go to the historic branch of the public library, and the fireplaces there, the hearths, the mantles, of the fireplaces there are all sculpted from Carrara marble. Very uh, exquisite. And so it's a very cool thing. I, I never thought in my life I'd be able to actually touch Carrara marble. I've seen sculptures made from Carrara marble. Of course, you're not allowed to touch those. But uh, getting to touch Carrara marble uh, about a year or two ago at the historic branch of the library, it was, was for me, as an arts person, as someone who loves Italy, as um Someone who frequently references it in teaching lessons like this. That was a that was a special time. So this is the quarry there in Carrara. So this oblong rectangle of marble was purchased, extracted from the rock from the side of this mountain here in Carrara. And the artist who began sculpting it, his name was Antonio Rossellino, and he was, we think, a student of Donatello. He began working with the marble, and uh, we think he drilled a hole in it, uh, which was uh, an attempt to begin creating the space for what would be the legs. And in doing so, found that the piece of stone was, in fact, very brittle. It was not a very good piece of stone, and decided not really much could be done with it. Leonardo da Vinci... Uh, was then given the task. He, of course, was up for all kinds of experimental things and up to any, any number of challenges. He was an inventor, and I'm sure you know all about Leonardo da Vinci. And he attempted it, worked with it for a little while, and he 
said that much like Antonio Rosalino, he said, again, the stone is worthless. It's brittle and not really good for anything. Well, the church had paid a large sum of money to have this piece of stone. So uh, they didn't get rid of it, but they weren't sure what to do with it. If some master like uh, Leonardo or a student of Donatello could not do anything with it, then um, it was kind of a head scratcher what, what was going to be done with this very expensive uh, piece of what was now being determined as essentially garbage. And like garbage, it was treated for 25 years. It was put out in the church courtyard and it was laid down on its on its back, which is not really good for the marble when it's meant to be standing upright. Uh, they just laid it down on the ground in the church courtyard. And for 25 years, it laid out there in, in the weather, in the rain. It was garbage, useless, damaged. And it just laid there waiting to see if it would ever have a future. Let's review our story of Samuel so far, and then we'll come back to that story. The book of Samuel begins with Hannah's prayer. She says to the Lord, you give me a son, I'll I'll give him to you. And uh, he does and she does. And so Samuel is dedicated to the Lord, becomes Israel's first prophet. In chapter four, the ark is sent into battle. It's lost to the Philistines. Eli and his sons die. That makes Samuel judge and priest as well over Israel. Shiloh, where the ark had been, the tabernacle had been for almost 400 years, was probably destroyed during these same wars. Samuel sets up base in Ramah, but um, Israel is uh, apparently without tabernacle, without a without a home base, without a capital. Uh, the Philistines are very terrified of the ark and all of the things that it causes to them and their idols. So they send it out of town quickly after seven months of uh, passing around like a hot potato. They send it back into Israel. Um, some men are struck dead in Israel because they look at the ark or look into the ark. And finally, it's pawned off on some non-Israelites in um, Kiriath Jerem, the Gibeonites, who were made water bearers and woodcutters for Israel based on a, a, a treaty and a deception that happens back in the book of Joshua long, long ago. So now it's in the house of a man named Eleazar. It's in his guest room and there it waits. In the meantime, Israel asks for a king, thereby rejecting God as their king, rejecting Samuel as their judge. But God says, let them have one anyway. But God says, I get to pick. So God anoints Saul as king. And at first he appears to be the model king of Israel. He's tall, he's strong, he's handsome. And yet right away we see some foreshadowing of his weakness and his lack of faith. Samuel gives a farewell warning in chapter 12 and he feels like he's been fired basically. So he decides to retire now that Saul is in charge of things. Saul commits uh, several public sins, one of which we'll continue looking at tonight here in chapter 15. And in uh, chapter 14, and again in 15, Samuel informs him that he's no longer the Lord's anointed and that the torch will be passed to someone else. So let's go to the text now. Let's uh, quickly skim over chapter the events of chapter 15 and get right on in to 16. So here is 1 Samuel 15. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and you'll have it here on the screen. 
Samuel told Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. So if you followed along in the wandering series, one of the things that we briefly talked about was this little skirmish uh, quickly after they left um, the uh, after they left Egypt, this battle with the Amalekites. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. It's a very difficult text for us to look at and think about. But the fact of the matter is the Amalekites were evil towards the Lord's chosen. The Lord's chosen are special and should be treated as such and attempted to wipe out the nation of Israel in its infancy. And the Lord does not take kindly to those who want to wipe out the nation of Israel. These were the, the Nazis of their time attempting to genocide the Israelites. And the Lord says the only way to deal with this, the only justice here is to completely remove the Amalekites from the face of the earth. Otherwise, if anything continues, it's as if God has not passed judgment. If anything continues, it's um, possible that their way of thinking and their way of dealing in the world might continue to be passed on. So this is problematic for modern Western people. It's not as problematic for pretty much everyone else who's ever lived on the earth as um, this is pretty typical religious response to a lot of things. So well, we just kind of have to put that in the context that it is, particularly in the context of God's justice. That's the number one context that we have to put it in, that God gets to decide these things. Well, even so, uh, and this is the part we're just going to kind of skip. Saul goes and uh, they have a battle and he brings back, he captures King Agag alive, but he destroys a lot of other things. Uh, Saul and the troops, they take the best of sheep, goats, cattle, and everything. Again, things they were supposed to destroy. So in verse 10, it says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. And uh, then we see Samuel confronting Saul. Uh, Saul expresses remorse. We, it's difficult to tell how sincere it is, if he's actually sorry, if he's just sorry he got caught. And we notice that it's King Agag of Amalek. You might remember the book of Esther, Haman, the enemy in the book of Esther is referred to as an Agagite. And that does not necessarily mean he's a descendant of Agag, because we see at the end of this chapter that Samuel does what Saul could not do, and he hacks Agag into pieces. So probably not a descendant of Agag, probably more a commentary that Haman was going to do what King Agag tried to do, what the Amalekites tried to do. And that because Saul did not completely wipe out the Amalekites, as he was instructed, that the, the, the thought that you could completely wipe out the Jewish people continues on on the face of the earth. And so even in Esther, that's a callback to this very moment right here in 1 Samuel 15, where Saul does not fully follow the Lord's instructions. And again, this is very important. It's always important to follow the complete instructions of the Lord, but it's especially important when you are the leader of a community of faith, particularly when you're a leader of the entire nation of Israel. Um, you you have a 
a very strict standard to which you are to adhere because everyone is looking to you to see how to behave. And so when instructions are not followed out exactly, God will uh, exact a punishment and, and will remove you from office, which is what happens here. So even though uh, Saul is sorry, Samuel chops up King Agag and tells uh, Saul that he's done. And we end chapter 15 here in verse 34. Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? So again, this goes back to um, the uh, sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, after their very unholy thing that they do in uh, Leviticus chapter 10. The Lord warns Moses and Aaron, don't, don't cry over this. Don't, don't rend your garments. Don't show that you're sorry over this. You should not be sorry because this was God's justice. We've already had that instance called to mind in the death of Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons. And now here it's being called back again, where God says, hey, don't mourn over this because this is what I have chosen to do. And what I choose to do is always right. Continuing on with the rest of verse one, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. So again, showing that they did not part on great terms. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and he will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint me for, uh, you are to anoint, you are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? They probably heard about what he had done to King Agag. So they're probably a little nervous when Samuel shows up. In peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. Uh, Eliab is Jesse's oldest, and so presumably the strongest and the tallest, that sort of thing. Again, this, the types of things that we first saw with King Saul in being handsome and tall and strong, we would see that in Eliab. And so Samuel, quite expectedly, as, as, as we might do, looks at him and says, certainly the Lord's anointed is here before him. Verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Robert Alter's translation here points out in the original language, the parallelism that is going on in the original text that says something more accurately, um, more accurately like man sees with the eye but God sees with the heart. So it's very interesting that that with the heart is there in Alter's translation, which he says is 
a better parallel way to understand the original con uh, construction in the Hebrew, that some of the English translations may be bringing the actual words forward in the right way, but uh, not necessarily the intent of the Hebrew. So again, Alter's translation says, man sees with the eye, but God sees with the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Then Jesse presented seven of his sons to him. Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. we're going to stop there for tonight. I just love that Robert Alter translation. So if you, if you recall, Robert Alter is the one that's done the Hebrew translation, uh, the translation and commentary for the entire Hebrew Bible, what we Christians call the Old Testament. I've been using his book, uh, The David Story, as a primary resource in preparing notes for these lessons. Uh, you can get the David Story, which covers First and Second Samuel, or you can get his entire Hebrew Bible, they're all available both as uh, physical books, but also as eBooks. And I just love his translation. He preserve, he tries to preserve that narrative style. That's one thing that we're primarily looking at here is the storytelling of the book of Samuel, that it's a story that's being told. And there's certain cast members that are chosen. There's certain lines of dialogue that are chosen. There's certain events that are chosen. You don't tell everything. You don't have time. So why are these events selected? And what do they tell us about the characters who were real people? All these things really happened and they're real people, but it's being told as a story. And the way that it's told as a story should tell us something about the facts that are being presented. And so there's something uh, in the storytelling in this moment that is very beautiful when the Lord tells Samuel, man sees with the eye, God sees with the heart. We go about all of our lives seeing with our eyes. It's our primary input method, right? It's the way we primarily experience the world. When things are close enough, we might be able to touch them or smell them or something like that. But even more than hearing, sight is the way that we take in the world and understand it. And so we're used to relying on our eyes for making all kinds of decisions and all kinds of judgments. We do it with our uh, our romantic relationships. We do it um, with trying to understand our, our own families. We do it in uh, lots of times in picking our friends. We do it with our, our jobs, our decisions with money, our, our school, our politics, how we treat strangers, how we treat you know servers at restaurants or people that are delivering our food or groceries to us. We immediately make some uh, judgments with our eyes. Now, it's uh, expected to do that. In fact, we could not function much in the world if we didn't immediately make some kind of snap judgments with our eyes upon looking at things. Otherwise, it would take us forever to make any decision about anything. But we must understand that we rely on that often as a crutch. And in very important matters, 
we should be more like God and uh, less like our uh, human nature. So we should f- realize that we often see with our eyes, but that the Lord sees with the heart. And we need to learn to see with our hearts so that we can have good relationships, so that we can make good decisions about the important things in life, so that seeing with the heart starts to become second nature. And maybe one day, God willing, seeing with the heart will overtake our ability to see with our eyes. So what does it mean to see with the heart? What does that mean? Well, heart in this case doesn't mean the actual pumping blood organ. Of course, you know that. What it means is the total self, the essential self. So for Christians, this means beginning with Genesis 1, that man is made in God's image. Okay, This means understanding every person, every man, every woman, every child is made in God's image. Now, we've talked in the Light in the Darkness series, the Genesis series, that humans are made in God's image, that humans are also capable of great evil and, and are often selfish and choose sin. We recognize that. But in the beginning, they were made in God's image. Each of us are made in God's image. We must begin there. So every thief, every murderer, every politician, every neighbor, every family member, every preacher, every class teacher, we are all made in God's image. We should begin there. And um, a lot of times we want to sort of uh, think about this in terms of lost versus saved. Jesus talked a lot more about religion versus relationship. And Tim Keller has a really great sermon on, it's called the Inside Out Kingdom. And it's on the Sermon on the Mount, primarily Matthew chapter six. And in that sermon, Keller says, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is not about giving versus not giving. He doesn't say, nobody gives, you should give. What he says is, some people give like this, but I tell you, give like this. It's not about fasting versus not fasting. You know, it's not, hey, the world doesn't fast. If, If you love God, you should fast. If you're a believer, if you're a church person, you should fast. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount says. The Sermon on the Mount says, some people fast like this, but you should fast like this. It's not about praying versus not praying. He says, some people pray like this, but I tell you, pray like this. It's not about worship versus not worshiping. It's about some people worship like this, but I tell you, worship like this. It's about the source and the motives and the focus, the subject of all of these things. And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27, Jesus sums up the whole Sermon on the Mount by talking about these two buildings. And he says, the person who hears these things and puts them into practice is like the person who builds his house upon the rock. And anyone uh, seated around the Galilee there would understand what it's like to build a house there near the shore. You would want to dig down in the sand and the sediment until you reach that bedrock and you build your house on that rock. And so he says, the person who hears these things and puts them into practice is like the person that digs down and builds that house on a foundation of stone, on a foundation of rock. But the person who hears these things and does not put them into practice is like a person that just builds right on top of the sand. And when the, when the rains and the floods and the storms come, the house that's built on the rock will stand. And the house that's built on the sand will collapse with a great crash. 
And the sermon ends on this very violent and um, spectacular imagery. But we see two people described as Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount. Not one with a house and one without. It's two having built seemingly identical houses. It doesn't say anything about the difference in the houses. The difference is what they're built upon. One's built on sand, things uh, that move, things that have no depth. The other is built on solid rock, something that is the essence of the whole created world, something that will never shift and move. And so Jesus is calling out the religious here. And so those of us that have grown up in church, those of us that are members of church, those of us who call ourselves Christians, this should cause us to perk up our ears because Jesus is not talking lost people versus saved people. He's talking about religious people versus disciples. And he's saying, if you see with the eyes, you look at two identical houses, but if you see with the heart, you will understand that one is going to collapse and one will stand when adversity comes. He doesn't say the person who hears this and puts in this into practice is the person who builds their house on the stone, but the person who doesn't ever find out about this, the person who never hears these words, they're the person who builds the house on the sand. No, what he says is the person who hears these words and does not put them into practice. Both house builders hear the words. They know the teaching. They go to church every Sunday. They're in the pew. They're in their Bible. They know theology. They can quote book, chapter, and verse and all kinds of things. But one of them has built his house on stone because he puts these things into practice. The whole reason that we do these studies, the whole reason that we um, study scripture at all is not to know scripture. And it's not to know about God. It's to know God, not know about God, but to know him. And the reason we want to know him is because we want to be loved by him and we want to love him and we want to love our neighbor. We want to love each other. That's the end goal that we're after, to be loved by God and to love God and to love our neighbor. That's the end goal. That's why we study scripture is to know who that God is so that we can know how we are loved by him and how we ought to love him, how we ought to love each other. That's the end goal. That's it. Jesus says those are the greatest commands. That's what we're after. That sums up all the law and the prophets. That's what we're after. So when we put this into practice, it's out of that motivation. That's the rock that we're building on. Jesus is the rock that we're building on because he models all those things perfectly and without fault. We're constantly trying to have ourselves formed into the likeness of Jesus. The house that we're building, we're building on that foundation of Jesus because he shows us who God is so that we can be loved by him and so that we can love him and so that we can love our neighbor is ourselves. So when Jesus calls out the religious in the Sermon on the Mount, we should really listen because our house might look like things out of the Bible, but what is it built on? Are we putting it into practice? Are we putting it into practice when Jesus says, go make disciples? Are we putting it into practice when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourselves? Are we putting it into practice when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them? Are we putting those things into practice? And I, I convict myself when I ask those questions. So we've got to ask, are we being religious or are we in relationship with the Lord? Saul looked like he was going to be a good king to the eye. But when you look with your heart, you see that Saul was not up to the task. As Samuel comes into Jesse's family, he looks at the eldest and he says, here's someone who's up to the task because he's looking with his eyes and God admonishes him. He says, Samuel. Don't look with your eyes. I haven't picked this one. You're looking with your eyes. I'm looking with 
my heart. The Lord was looking for someone that was going to pursue him, that was going to pursue the Lord with his heart. Someone who cared more about what God wanted than what he wanted or what the world wanted. Back in chapter 15, one of the things that we skipped over was Saul saying, I listen to the people. The Lord wants someone that will listen to the Lord, the word of the Lord, the heart of the Lord. He wants someone that will see with his heart the way that God sees with his heart. Are we being religious or are we growing in relationship with the Lord? So you remember the rectangle with the hole in it, a piece of garbage laying out in the church courtyard? Well, it laid there for 25 years. It's in the rain and the snow and the sun. The church decided to give it one last try before discarding it completely. A young sculptor by the name of Michelangelo, who was not even born when that stone was extracted from the quarry in Carrara, he begged for the job and eventually was rewarded with it. Michelangelo was known for his uh, sculpture already. And uh, these sculptures, they're actually from uh, towards the end of his life. He was carving them to be part of um, a mausoleum for uh, some noble person whom I forget. And they, as you can see, are unfinished. Now, they're, they're kind of meant to be trapped in the stone anyway, but uh, he was not able to completely finish them. So what you see is when you look at these sculptures is you see the handiwork of the sculptor. You see the chisel marks. They've not been smoothly polished. And so you see every cut, every abrasion. You see lots of big chunks of stone still left that have not yet been cut away. And you see these figures are trapped. But you can also see the stone from which they came. You can see the rectangle. You can see uh, the, the pillar of stone that they once were before the artist went hacking away at it. And you can imagine the big chunks that have been cut away, especially the one on the left. You can see that uh, concave area where under his uh, elbow and, and above his thigh, that must have been cut out. Big chunks of rock uh, falling away. You can see where smaller chunks would have been cut out in the, the crevice around the, the legs and uh, very small, uh, fine abrasions to uh, start carving out the, the, the muscles and the knees, the body features, uh, the, the beard, these kinds of things. But they remain unfinished, but you can see the process at work here. And Michelangelo described his process this way. He said, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. This was the way Michelangelo worked, that he would sit and stare at a piece of stone until he saw what was inside it. And then he would attack it and he'd work on it day and night until the finished product emerged. I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. So um, as you look at these, I want you to think about the question that we were asking just before this. Are we being religious or are we in relationship with the Lord. We've talked a lot about discipleship in all of these series that we've done. Discipleship forms us spiritually to look like the Jesus we follow. So when we look at our discipling handbook and we see the discipleship wheel that's in the middle of the book, 
we see that once we were spiritually dead, but when we decided to follow Christ, we decided we wanted to have our sins forgiven, we were baptized, we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we were born again. That green wedge there shows that we were born again. And then we become a spiritual infant. And uh, someone is sharing with us, they're sharing their life, they're sharing new truths, they're sharing new habits. We're learning these truths, we're learning these new habits. We begin to take them on ourselves, we become less dependent, we start to become a child. Now, we're still very self-focused, but we're no longer ignorant. We've learned some things, and so we start to develop connections to God and our own personal spiritual disciplines. We begin to develop connection to small group and to church family. We begin to connect ourselves to our purpose and our identity in Christ. And someone is parenting us, helping us through this spiritual formation as we go sort of clockwise around this wheel. Then we become a spiritual young adult and, and we are equipped for ministry. We start getting our feet wet in ministry and then eventually we're released to do ministry on our own as our character, uh, our language and our behaviors become characterized by God-centeredness and others-centeredness, become focused on God, focused on others. And eventually, as we grow into maturity, we take on the challenge of helping parent other young believers in sharing the gospel with those who are lost, in sharing new truths and new habits in, in our lives with those who are uh, now born again. We raise them from infants to children to young adults. And in doing so, we become spiritual parents. We become disciple makers. We become disciple growers. We become disciplers. We um, explain that discipleship process to young adults. We uh, sh show them how to do it. We release them to disciple others with our help. And then we release them to become disciple makers in their own right. And eventually we have generations of people making disciples after us. Just uh, like in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, take the things that I have taught you, teach them to reliable people who will be able to teach others also. Right there, you see four generations, Paul, Timothy, reliable people, others also, four generations of disciple makers. Those of you listening right now, you might be the others also. Well, it's time for you to rise up, to grow up, to be shaped into reliable people so that you may teach others also. One day you'll find yourselves as the Timothys who've had the things handed to you and you're helping other people become reliable as you continue to parent, as you continue to disciple others. That's what discipleship is about. It's about formation. It's about growth. And when we look at these figures trapped in the stone, they're, they're neither art nor stone. They're, they're half stone, half art. They're on their way. They're the angel still trapped in the marble. They are being set free by the creator, by the artist. Discipleship forms us spiritually to look like the Jesus we follow. And like sculpting, large pieces are going to fall away. There's going to be small refinements. There's going to be the polishing of small adversities over time. And through all this, we're going to grow spiritually and we're going to look more like the Jesus that we follow as we develop in relationship with him. Not a religion, but relationship. They often are going to look the same on the outside. But when we look with the heart, we'll see the love that we have for God and the love that we have for others. And we'll be motivated by the fact that God first loved us, that Christ, while we were still sinners, Christ first loved us. So as you have probably guessed by now, that, that fragile garbage, that fragile rectangle of marble in Michelangelo's hands became the statue of David. This is David at home 
in uh, the Academy Gallery in Florence, Italy. And you see on either side of the hallway leading up to the David, these figures trapped in stone. You can see the chairs there in the hallway to get a sense of the size. Here's the Academy filled with tourists. So you can see how huge this statue really is. It's one of the most exquisite masterpieces in all of art history. And it is a very beautiful thing to behold. I'm very thankful to have seen it in person. Discipleship takes us from uh, something that's unrecognizable from the finished product. When we are spiritually dead, we may feel like garbage. We may feel damaged. We may feel forgotten, abandoned, useless, discarded. But in the hands of a master, we can be set free to become the beautiful thing that we were meant to be. We can be destroyed into beauty in the hands of a capable master, a master who sees not with the eyes, but with the heart. So here's what I would like for you to do this evening. I want you to think about one person in your life that you've been seeing with your eyes and not with your heart. Can you do that? Is there someone in your life, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's someone you're currently in the house with, um, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's someone you go to church with, maybe it's uh, someone who's just kind of an acquaintance, maybe um, you, you know them, maybe you've made yourself a self-appointed chaplain at a restaurant or a coffee shop or a grocery store or some kind of thing like that, and you've gotten to know the people that work there, maybe just an acquaintance, but is there someone in your life that you've only been seeing with your eyes and not your heart? I want you to think of that person. I want you to hold their name, their face in your mind. Hold their name and face in your heart. Look at them now with your heart. And I want you to ask yourself this question. What are you going to do about that this week? You've been seeing them with your eyes. You want to grow to the point where you're seeing them with your heart. What are you going to do this week to make that happen? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.